this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Piers Ridyard from Radix with me today. How are you, Piers? Hi, I'm very good. Great to be on the show, David. So Radix is a new platform. Uh, they state like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but scalable and easy to build on. So we're going to learn all about Radix today. But before we do that, what I like to do with guests is get to know them before their project, before what they were working on in digital assets and crypto and blockchain. So if you could, I know that you are a previous founder, I believe, uh, part of YC as well, too. So give us a little bit of background about yourself. And what I'd like to hit on is not necessarily the when Bitcoin moment, but what specifically about the underpinnings of the technology? What about, obviously, chains themselves got you inspired uh, to enter into this world? I just think it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's sort of this, um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but in, in Japan, they have this concept of ikiman, which is like a the overlapping of things you're good at, things you enjoy, and things you can get paid for. Um, and my background sort of quite varied. I originally, you know, went to universities to do aerospace engineering. I changed to Chinese in business. I went and worked in investment banking. I did a, I did a um, part of a training contract in law. So I did my GDL and my LPC. Uh, and uh, then I ended up building a, a consumer electronics company, um, which uh, got me into sort of the computer manufacturing area. And I really got into crypto through mining. Um, that was my first interest in it. I was intrigued by this idea of you could just connect a computer up and you could you could mine you could you could mine things. And Ethereum was the first thing that I really got involved with. But it was the sort of the passion of the community with regards to what you could do with these tools um, that really drew me in. But uh, as I say, it's this weird overlap of things that um, have legal impact, uh, things that have financial industry impact, and things that are sort of technological. Um, and uh, sort of my interests very much align at the uh, at the intersection of all those areas. And I found like these ideas of everything from decentralized autonomous organizations uh, and the impacts that they might have for sort of economies and governments uh, and, and society sort of in the long term, incredibly exciting. Um, but also sort of it spoke very much in the language of, of the other two areas, the sort of a financial area and the, and, and the technical area, like the, the ways the, these cryptographic primitives that were available to then build these incredible sort of applications. Um, and I actually, the first thing they actually sort of got started building um, on Ethereum was, was insurance. Um, mm. This idea of, well, if you have a, a decentralized autonomous organization um, or this idea of a Sim, more simply than that, a contract that can administer value based on a set of rules. That that sounds like that could work really nicely for some interesting insurance applications that maybe could go for crop insurance in places that's really difficult mm -hmm. to um, buy insurance or that you could use for um, automatically triggered insurance. Um, but the first, like the things that I really came across as barriers right then in the early days of Ethereum, where nothing had really been created in the space, was one, um, good uh, stable stores of value. So mm -hmm. somewhere that you could, like an insurance contract doesn't work if 
the thing that you're trying to ensure when you get a payout, like the payout could be a million dollars or it could be one dollar. That doesn't mm-hmm. really work, and so it it doesn't it wouldn't work very well um, for a uh, a good way of of, of organising people around that value and then the other thing that we that i came across quite early was it's really difficult to build Mm -hmm. on ethereum um the the the, and that's still true today like you know five jesus five years on um it's still really difficult to build in the ethereum ecosystem if you're doing anything more than just of the very standard you know erc20s or whatever um and then and and then the other aspect of it is like i just didn't see how it was going to scale. I just didn't see where there was an easy path or any path really from where Ethereum was then to something that plausibly looked like it could work for more than just like a a niche industry or a small number of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suppose that's what really led me to, to Radix. Interesting. You know, obviously we've talked a lot about the show, obviously with Ethereum having Solidity as its language, that has been an obstacle for many developers because it is a new language and something that is different, even though there are people that are building smart contracts off of Java. And, you know, obviously with the speed and the EVM and privacy issues abound, but obviously we've also had people on the show that are building L2 solutions on top of that to speed things up. So it is, I agree, you know, there's, I think the L1 of Ethereum has obviously had its obstacles and it has been a deterrent to some. And then obviously there are people out there that are building L2 solutions on top of L1 that are hopefully uh, enhancing the opportunities and the prospects of Ethereum. But before we get too far into that, I want to hear more about Radix and I want to hear, you know, for people that are learning about digital assets, they may know about Bitcoin, they may now know, know about Ethereum, maybe a few other different things out there. Give us a brief one or two minute description of what Radix is for people that may not be as well versed as you and I in this world. Sure. So Radix is a platform, a decentralized public network that you can build um, digital assets, applications uh, and and, and um, uh, use to be able to transfer value, to be able to administer that value and also to be able to create new types of financial products. Um, but the difference between Radix versus what came before is we took a very different approach to how to build the uh, the data architecture, which is sort of like the fundamental components of how it stores what's on the ledger. And that starting point meant that we were able to make the entire system incredibly scalable. So the big problems that you're seeing in spaces like Ethereum um, at the moment is this scalability of not mm-hmm. just transactions, but also tra- scalability of logic um, and the composability of that logic. And that basically means that um, if, a, if a massive event happens on the network, it sort of stops everything working. Uh, and, and that happened very recently with uh, MakerDAO, but that previously happened back in 2017 with CryptoKitties. But basically, these applications, if they become very successful, they, they, they make the network grind to a halt. And Radix was built to address these problems by rethinking how to build the, the system, the, the fundamental foundations of it, so that people could more easily build these systems in a way that would be able to scale without, you know, if millions of people come onto it and start mm-hmm. using it without that causing a bottleneck. So let's 
you're the first person to, to address this. We haven't addressed this on the show, and this is not an Ethereum beatdown moment here. As everyone knows on my show, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist. I'm a knowledge maximalist. I like to learn everything, and I think everyone out there should learn what else is out there. So you mentioned that, and I don't think anyone's talked about that. This was recently with the world of open finance slash DeFi with Maker and everything that happened with some of the cascading uh, CDPs. Can you just... Briefly, how did things almost break? Can you just allude to that? Because I think it's important for people to understand that as a differentiation between you and and what you know Ethereum and some of the other smart contract platforms are. Sure, and like, yeah, absolutely, and like, debatably, sort of did break in parts, right? Like the um, the it depend depending on who <laughs> who you're talking to, but um, MakerDAO is a is a uh, is a synthetic product to create. Um, a stable coin. In this case, um, a, a, a derivative of um, the of the dollar. And the way it does this is, it's essentially uh, it over collateralizes an agreement, which basically means I can take some Ethereum and I can put it into um, a MakerDAO contract, uh, and then I will get this thing out of it called Dai. And DAI is essentially benchmarked to the US dollar. So one DAI should equal $1 all of the time. Um, and it does this through a relatively complex system of oracles as well as a complex system of liquidity providers, which is what caused some of the problems here. Now, essentially, while Ethereum is trading um, above the sort of the margin call level of the contract, then everything's good. And die is always backed by at least a dollar's worth. Every die is worth backed by at least a dollar's worth of Ethereum. But obviously, Ethereum is a very volatile asset. And so massive changes in market price can mean that you get these margin calls. And the margin calls, basically what you have to do is you either have to um, add more Ethereum or actually now you can add true USD, but let, let's, let's, let's keep it at, at Ethereum. Add more Ethereum to the contract, so to add more collateral so that you don't get your position doesn't get closed out, or to, um, or to, or to uh, sell the Ethereum that's underpinning that contract so that, so that um, you can add some more, uh, so that you basically you're closing out the position. Mm -hmm. Or you can get DAI and you can send DAI into the contract so that you're reducing the amount of DAI that is backed by that collateral. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens it, what happens is if you don't take any action and it falls below a certain limit, you trigger um, a liquidity call. And then there's these like these these people who sit and can bid on buying out the Ethereum from these contracts. Mm -hmm. And this is designed to be a decentralized fashion, right? So uh, you essentially get, it gives you an automatic discount. I think it's like 5% off market price. Or maybe it might, may, might even be 10% on market price. But basically, you can come in and you can buy the Ethereum from the contract to close out the contract on behalf of the person who didn't come in and mm -hmm. close that contract out for you. So the that's fine if there is no congestion on the network and that all works very well mm -hmm. even if there's quite large movements in price which there have been the problem that happened in this particular black swan moment is that there was a large amount of congestion already on the ethereum ledger and the congestion meant that people were not able and the price was falling very quickly so people were not able to get collateral 
into their MakerDAO contracts in time, not because they didn't want to add collateral or want to add DAI to be able to stop them being closed out and their Ethereum being liquidated because they, they thought, you know, I don't want to be liquidated from my Ethereum position. Um, but the the congestion was such that it was that that they thought they were presenting transactions that were going to be added to the to the to the to the Ethereum blockchain, but um, they were being bid out, and so that meant that their transactions would stay pending and wouldn't go through. The other problem is that the same problem was happening on the liquidity provision side. So the people who were trying to buy. Um, Ethereum out of out of the out of these contracts which were being called essentially couldn't get in because their gas price wasn't set correctly mm-hmm. and so like one or two bots were in the liquidity pools buying Ethereum at essentially zero value so mm-hmm. some of these contracts got closed out um, where no where the 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 uh, people bought the collateral out of the Ethereum contracts for zero dollars, or as close to zero makes no difference. Right. The 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 people who had the who had created the Ethereum the the MakerDAO sort of that particular MakerDAO contract essentially lost all of the value of their Ethereum, mm-hmm. and then the um, the systemic collateralization fund, which is like this, this is called Maker, um, which is the other half of the of the MakerDAO tokens. Um, Maker now also sits on the hook because there's this extra pool of funds that sits here ready to bail out any contracts that didn't have sufficient Ethereum in, in them to cover the cost of the die. Mm-hmm. So now the people who hold, who hold Maker are on the hook for making good the die contracts that don't have you know, didn't have enough money in them to one to one, and the result right. of this wasn't catastrophic. It was like four point five million dollars worth of um, uh, about four point five million dollars worth, I think, uh, was the last count. But mm-hmm. what that sort of meant is that people, like people, use make a make a um, DAO, like for a few reasons. But a big one is is this sort of leverage position on Ethereum. I believe in Ethereum. Mm-hmm. I want to cash out some of my position. And so I am going to put some ETH in, and, uh, but I don't expect to lose that ETH, right? I just right. want the DAI to be able to sell some DAI, to be able to like, take some money off the table, but keep my long option on ETH so that when ETH goes up in value, I, I haven't actually sold my ETH. I've just mm-hmm. like, parked my ETH. Right. And so there's a lot of OGs who have sort of, very bought into the sort of the the vision and the ideals of the DeFi space and Ethereum have have sort of lost their entire you know their entire savings or entire work of the last five years of building mm-hmm. up position in Ethereum and being part of the community and I think that's sort of where some of the real anger is as well. I agree, and I think it's interesting that while we've had you know you come from traditional markets too, so you can appreciate this. We've had you know limit down a few times here in the States over the last two weeks, three weeks. We've obviously had immense amounts of liquidity in the repo markets coming in. We've had the circuit breakers triggered here, you know, all things from traditional finance. But, you know, as you mentioned before, this was all happening. These cascading liquidations were happening within the, you know, digital asset landscape. And it didn't break. 
it, it it's still alive and it's still here and it made it through. So I think it's interesting. It's an interesting point in time, but I want to get back to Radix and to uh, kind of unpack some of the things that you guys are doing there. Um, and so I know that you guys state that you started from scratch. Um, and so we've talked about this before that other blockchains out there are very linear. So you have the propagation times, you have the 10 minutes, you want to use that as, you know, many people talk about the linear nature of that as a feature and not a bug. But then you run into scalability problems. And so we've seen on Bitcoin and Ethereum with their throughput, you know, their uh, their TPS is not exactly what you would like to see from a commercial standpoint. And that's why you have a lot of L2 solutions. And so I've noticed that you are, you know, kind of redesigning things. I believe you're using DAGs, which we've talked a little bit about before, but you're also using sharding. So I'd like to know kind of how you guys started from scratch and how you incorporate DAGs and sharding into Radix. So uh, we are. It, it's not actually a DAG. Um, that, but that is a. That's a. That's a. That's a common uh, misconception that we come across from the architecture. The the the, the starting the start the starting point was actually, um, and I talked about this a bit earlier. But like, you can, you have your a, a, a transaction on a ledger. Um, the ones that you're worried about, the ones that are going to cause problems for you are ones that conflict, right? So if, I, if I'm trying to double spend some Bitcoin, those, that's what consensus is there for. That's what the emergent truth property of consensus prevents or, or, or guards against is this idea of I, I spend five pounds to you and I spend five, five pounds to Sophie and that I, can't, I shouldn't be able to spend both of these five pounds because only one of them should exist. Um, now, if you think about the way that transact that you could use, uh, that you could sort the data, you can, you could, if you start from basic principles and you go, well, what if you make it so that um, you can cut up the data, but you cut up the data essentially according to address. And then the addresses are mapped deterministically to a shard. Now, a shard is just a, a piece of a data. So if I take a data structure or, or if a database and I cut it up, cutting up a database, the common industry term is sharding. And you can shard in lots of different ways. Most uh, centralized systems use something called, uh, use um, ad hoc sharding. So basically, as the database gets bigger, you cut it up into more and more pieces. But that makes that that causes problems in decentralized systems because you don't know which is the correct shard mapping. You can never be completely sure what the correct shard mapping is or what most up to date one is, and you can end up in this constant overhead chatter about just where data lives. Mm -hmm. So what Radix did instead is it went right, no dynamic sharding. Let's have a static static shard space, and let's have it so big that we're not going to have to cut it up again. So Radix is eighteen point four quintillion shards, which is two to the power sixty four, which is a very very big number. If you want to be able to visualize that, the um, Google is estimated to be holding about ten exabytes of data, uh, and if you cut ten exabytes of data into eighteen point four quintillion pieces, you would end up with zero point five uh, bytes per shard. So mm. essentially, it, it, it's a very large number divided by a very large number because you're a very small number. But what that means in practice is once you have a deterministic data structure, as in I know where all the 
shards are and they never change how many shards there are. I can go, right, your public key, your wallet address or your smart contract address or whatever it is that is holding funds, that has a deterministic mapping to a shard in the data structure. So I go, all right, your public key, which is you know, your wallet address, if you want the, the sort of the more common term for it, is a is a 256-bit number, mm-hmm. right? And if I modulo that, if I if I reduce the size of that number using a mathematical operator called a modulo to 64-bit space, it'll go, right, David, you live on shard five. Your, mm-hmm. your wallet lives on shard five, right? And Piers, your wallet lives on shard 20. And that means that anyone in the network, if I give you my wallet address, you can say, ah, oh, I know where you live. Right? Mm-hmm. Anyone can work that out. That you don't have to ask anyone and say, "Where does this wallet live? Where does this data live?" The next thing that does is it groups together related transactions and ungroups unrelated transactions. Right. So if a transaction is going from your address to your mum, you're sending, you know, twenty dollars back to your mum, mm-hmm. and I'm sending twenty dollars back to my mum. Those two transactions, they don't conflict. We know for a fact they don't conflict because they're not dealing with the same. Uh, wallets, they're not dealing with the same balances. So we don't need to make sure that consensus is run in order vis-a-vis those. Those can be completely asynchronous events. But if there's two transactions coming from the same wallet, they'll also be coming from the same shard where you can have ordered ordering of events mm-hmm. and you can make sure that you're rising any any conflicts any double spends and dealing with them at that shard location rather than and at a complete network state location got it in very what that what that means is you end up being able to run the majority of transactions in asynchronous parallel got it and that applies not just to transactions of you know me sending you some money but they also also applies to the state of smart contracts. And so we have this way of breaking up the state of smart contracts using this sharded system, using this way of parallelizing all of these state operations to make mean that you can have massive scalability of smart contract-like functionality as well as transaction functionality. Okay. So let's discuss Cerebus. Uh, that is the protocol that you've built. I want to get uh, some idea of some of the key differences and differentiators between that and some of the other protocols out there. Sure. So Cerberus is um, uh, is its basic. So it's called Cerberus. I, I think I, I may be pronouncing that wrong, but um, I, I've been told off by at least one person who knows Greek mythology better than me. But Cerberus is the... Uh, is the uh, is the hound that guards the gates of Hades? Okay. Um, but it it's a three-headed dog, uh, and um, our our consensus mechanism is a three-phase commit, which basically is, there's two there's two um, types of consensus algorithm broadly speaking that you can have. You can have ones that 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 favor liveness over safety, and ones that favor safety over liveness. All this means is that for Cerberus. A tra- once a transaction has gone through the three-phase commit process, that it's final. You have reached transactional finality, and you can't have a later truth revealed le- that arbitrarily can flip that decision. Mm-hmm. You could that essentially ca- causes something called a safety break, which means that that then has to be resolved by a secondary mechanism. It doesn't just automatically resolve on the network. So there's something like Bitcoin. Um, you're, you you submit a transaction to the network. And the first block confirms. So 
that's a problem that's probably correct and then the mm. next block confirms and you're like yeah that's almost definitely correct and then the next block confirms like well i'm like 80 percent sure 90 percent sure that's correct and as you go along you increase the probability that that transaction is correct but at any time someone could come along with a longer chain that comes behind that transaction merge it undo that transaction and all of the nodes will be like yep fine there's the longest chain that wins no controversy, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is this is probabilistic finality. On on Radix and Cerberus, it's deterministic finality. Once you have once a once a transaction has reached its finality, that transaction is final, and that history will always stay as that transaction. Um, that's what allows us to basically able to pass state between shards, and it's also what allows us to stitch shards together. So this is one of the difficult things that you need to be able to do when you're doing sharding is have good ways of having cross-shard communication. What Radix did is it, because it's so sharded, it's 18.4 quintillion shards, basically all transactions are cross-shard, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than in the same shard. You only have a one in 18.4 quintillion chance of of me and you transacting in the same shard, our addresses being in the same shard, because your 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 address, your wallet is randomly generated, my wallet is randomly generated, and they all deterministically sit on a shard that, you know, one in 18.4 quintillion chance of them being on the same shard. Most blockchains that or and most um, DAGs or, or DLTs that are taking the approach to sharding are, are basically trying to do this balancing act where they're like cross shard communication is really expensive so what we're going to try and do is make everything work in the same shard as much as we can do and like reduce as much cross shard communication as possible that's like the ethereum 2.0 approach and this is one of the big problems that they're seeing with composability and a few other things that like are really causing problems in the community at the moment but radix the reason the, by, by having this deterministic finality, by being able to then use that three phase commit to stitch together events that happen at different shards, means that you can have these emergent, emergent shard events that happen, are confirmed, and then reach finality within a, within, a, within a good boundary of time to mean that you can then rely on, on all of the events that happen on all of, all of the different shards without having to wait for a global shard or a global state to confirm before you can pass it across, which is essentially how every single other project is approaching this by having like a global shard and then the sub shards and then you have to to be able to do a transaction you sort of have to pass it across this global shard which means mm-hmm. just means that your global shard is now the bottleneck right that's just where your transactional throughput's going to break and the problem like the inherent problem with this approach is that the more you shard something the more likely cross shard is to be right so if i have two shards and and we're saying all the addresses are evenly distributed. I have a 50-50 chance that a transaction is going to be on my shard and a 50-50 chance that a transaction is going to need to cross the shards. If I have four shards, now I have a 75% chance that any given transaction will have to cross shards rather than be in the same shard. And so that's why this sort of approach of, of going cross shards expensive, we're going to make everything, try and make everything in the same shard is is a sort of a fudge that doesn't really work and that's why the sort of the radix approach of going one further and just going well let's make the protocol work inherently as a cross shard protocol rather than an in shard protocol that's that's the approach we have to take because the 
because everything is going to be sharded. And so you just like start with sharding in mind, build the protocol around cross shard communication, and then any and then your sort of your you'll you'll end up being able to hit those scalables much easier. Right. And so I think the last component I think that a lot of people are interested in these days is governance. So how do you actually get things to work with a network that is supposed to obviously be decentralized and distributed? That's a really great question. Um, and like this is one of these areas that I think a few people really care about, uh, but it's still it's still like a still niche. Um, the problem with governance is that what's right for a very large, very distributed network um, can end up being like over overwieldy for sort of small networks in the beginning. But um, if you don't get the sort of the, the social contract in place early and just be like, this is this is you know how we want the network to be governed. This is what gov- what we think the principles of governments are. Then you you sort of end up in situations that EOS finds itself in, or that Bitcoin has found itself in, uh, and and to a greater or lesser extent, sometimes Ethereum trips up on as well. Um, and it's really really difficult uh, to sort of like um, uh, square circle to square to circle 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 square circle. Um, so we've started off with a not-for-profit foundation, um, sort of so far so far so so usual. Um, and then the first version, the first early stages of the governance are going to focus on uh, simple on-chain stuff. So, like, what happens when? Um, how do we sort of reach quorum on or, or agreement on a on a network fork or an update to the code? Uh, and how are we making sure that community engagement and stakeholders have a have a voice? Um, and then the sort of the next stages of the of the and like also how do we create auditability, create accountability, and transparency for what the foundation is doing as well? So um, we're currently looking at different ways in which we can have uh, community representation in the foundation. How we can make sure that we have uh, frequent and transparent meetings, and that we can have things like sign off on things like budgets and stuff like that, which is a good starting point because essentially the team that has created the network is going to be the team that's going to be continuing to develop the technology for a while. Like communities take a little bit of time to grow and develop. Um, but then as they grow and develop, you also have to recognize that there's more stakeholders to a system than just the people who hold, who hold tokens, right? Mm-hmm. And we sort of separate them into three uh, core camps. One is um, the people who run the network and provide the security of the network. We call these the node runners. Um, the people who uh, build applications on top of the network, um, uh, and, uh, and, and these, we call these builders, uh, and then the people who uh, bring wealth to the network. Uh, and this is typically uh, demonstrated through the issuance of tokens, right? So either the creation of um, uh, new uh, crypto tokens or the creation of uh, asset-backed tokens, so you know, property-backed. Got it. Um what we'll do, I'd like to, as I said, at the end of the show, what I'd like to do is get to know this, uh, our guests a little bit more personally, and a lot of our listeners like this part. Um, and so if there are any books that you've read recently that you really uh, recommend that really uh, resonated with you, that would be awesome to hear about, and then any music that you like, and then we're going to learn where people can find out more about Radix. Okay, cool. Um, so I, with with books, I, I tend to do one fix one non-fiction i just try to sort of like iterate between the two um the last non-fiction book that i read uh was uh the lean product playbook 
Um, I know that uh, people will probably be familiar with the Lean Startup uh, mm-hmm. by Eric Ries. Um, it sort of takes the ideas of, of, the, of the Lean Startup, sort of metric-driven approach to building products, but then apl- applies it to a product-orientated thinking rather than the business-orientated thinking, because that's what Eric does when his book is sort of much more of like the company, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the Lean Product Playbook sort of talks much more about how you how you separate the different phases of thinking about products so um starts with something called the problem space which is just going and looking like in the area that that a product is looking to be launched into what are the problems that customers are trying to solve people are trying to do right now without trying to create solutions for them just go and talk to them and understand what their problems are and and really get them to say in their own words what they're actually trying to achieve rather than just trying to guess it um and then go uh, going from the problem space to the solution space and and looking at like how you can categorize what actually an MVP is and most people think of an MVP as minimum viable product as the easiest simplest thing you can build but it's got like one extra character which is the easiest simplest thing that also provides um, a element of customer delight like if it doesn't if it doesn't also if it only delivers a feature set that is essentially the same or, or very similar to what already exists it's not actually testing to see if you can bring something competitive to market. It's got to have that, that, that little bit of thing that just makes people go, oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that that could be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And then the last uh, non, uh, the last fiction book I read was The, uh, the 100-Year-Old Man Who uh, Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared, huh. um, which I, I loved. It's silly. Uh, it's it's sort of irreverent um and it, it's it's a one it's wonderful writing it's not i think he's a swedish writer or a uh, or a norwegian writer but um uh yeah just really really wonderful really wonderful book really funny that sounds um good. yeah and then music music um so, because uh, I'm because I'm on lockdown at the moment, uh, as as is everyone, um, I decided to uh, restart uh, sort of learning the piano. Um, oh. It was my it was my uh, New Year's resolution like two years ago. I'd never learned the piano, never played the piano before. But two years ago, I was like, I'm going to learn the piano, and I and I did it for three months, and then I just sort of got busy. I was like, well, now I'm locked in a house. <laughs> what a perfect time to try and do something again. So I've, I suppose I've just been listening to a lot of um, uh, Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and, and, and sort of various classical music while I've been working Love it. Uh, to help me concentrate. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. And then as we wrap up, where can people learn more about Radix and get in touch with you guys? Yeah, sure. So our website is uh, Radix. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T. That stands for Distributed Ledger Technology. So Radix DLT. That's uh, Delta Lima Tango. RadixDLT.com. Um, and uh, please do get in touch with us. You can get in touch with me at Piers. That's P-I-E-R-S at RadixDLT.com. Um, or you can just get in touch with us on the website. There's a link to do that too. Awesome. This was a great conversation with Piers Radiard, the CEO of Radix. We talked a lot about uh, what's happening out there as it relates to different protocols. We talked about their specific protocol and what distinguishes them with sharding. So thank you, Piers, for coming on. Hopefully we can catch up with you towards the end of the year and see how things have evolved. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you so much for having me, David.
For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Base Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.